When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the program, an interview with the BBC's World Affairs editor, John Simpson, on the crisis in Ukraine and over 50 years of reporting from the front line. This episode is a feature of the No Bullshit Leadership podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. Our host on today's show is global CEO of Havas Creative Group and author of the book No Bullshit Leadership, Chris Hurst. Here's Chris with more. Hello and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. My name is Chris Hurst. We've been working away behind the scenes to bring you season three, and I have an amazing lineup of guests in the pipeline, including former White House Director of Communications, Anthony Scaramucci, and the editor of the Financial Times, Rula Kalaf. Season three will be dropping in the next few weeks, and I'll be sure to keep you all posted. But I wanted to bring you today's episode a little sooner. Last Thursday, I had the privilege of speaking to the BBC's World Affairs editor, John Simpson. Back in late January, when John agreed to come on the podcast, I thought we'd be discussing the many and varied global leaders he has met and interviewed through his long career, rather than the biggest conflict in Europe since the Second World War. When I caught up with John, he had just returned from Finland, where he was reporting on the Ukraine crisis for his new BBC programme, Unspun World, and was hoping to get out to Ukraine itself as soon as possible. John has dedicated his life to reporting from the front line, joining the BBC more than 50 years ago as a reporter. His eyewitness testimony has shed light on many of the most significant moments in modern history, from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the Iraq War in 2003, where he was seriously injured in a friendly fire incident on the road to Baghdad. His career has taken him to more than 120 countries, including 30 war zones. We had a fascinating conversation about all of that, but had to begin with the events of the last three weeks. And I started by asking him whether Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a unique moment of crisis in his career. Um, Yeah, pretty much, actually, because, you know, you you have to be even older than I am to remember uh, when one country just marches into its neighbour and takes it over. Actually, of course, the Russians have got previous... Uh, in this as well as so much else. I mean, they did um, march into Hungary in 1956 and into Czechoslovakia, as it then was, in 1968, Um, and, of course, into Afghanistan in 1979, but that was a a slightly different operation. So it's not true, therefore, um, to say it hasn't happened in Europe in my lifetime. It hasn't happened like this in Europe in my lifetime. The idea of just simply sending in your tanks and some very nasty other 
types of weapon uh, and using them fairly discriminately again indiscriminately against um uh, ordinary civilians i mean we've seen uh, examples of that just even uh, even overnight of this morning so yeah it's different uh, it seems different and it's i'm afraid brought an end to that feeling which most of us had that things were kind of getting better they've got very very much worse now and and you you've you've touched on this in your answer to that question but there were many warning voices in the run up to the invasion but at the same time i feel like many people and i think including many world leaders uh, couldn't really believe that he'd do it uh, did you no i didn't i i i'll be absolutely honest i thought that the um intelligence that we were getting out of uh, london and uh, Washington was a kind of wind up uh, to make sure that that Putin uh, was nervous and would step back from anything he was going to do. I didn't think that the intelligence was so accurate, so moment by moment accurate, mm. and I. I I didn't think Putin would be so stupid, actually. Um, he's a very clever man. I've met him. I've been hugely impressed by him. But, you know, there's um, one uh, Kremlinologist that I know said uh, he really did just lock himself up over COVID and saw scarcely anybody. And, you know, I think these these uh, uh, feelings of anger towards Ukraine simply welled up mm. inside him until it did happen. So, so do you think then that that where we are now can be considered a failure of leadership by the by the West, particularly, or given that 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 Kremlinologist's observation, do you feel like this was a sort of with the trajectory was inevitable, that, that he was going to do this almost whatever happened? Well, I, I'm not sure about how inevitable it was, um, but uh, I, I don't believe that it was a particular failure of the West. I mean, the West has failed in, in all sorts of ways in the run-up to this crisis. Some countries do, people do, individuals do. But I, I don't think it was um, a kind of clear-cut uh, as action or lack of action by the West that did it. I mean, you could say, for instance, that uh, Joe Biden pulling American and therefore other Western troops out of Afghanistan last, last August uh, was a, a, a suggestion to Putin that, that he was weak and that uh, the West wouldn't uh, come together. I mean, that's perfectly possible. Yeah. Uh, anybody who looked at the way that Germany has uh, behaved um, in in the past over the uh, Nord Stream pipeline, for instance, would say they'll never do anything. You know, they'll always just sit there and take whatever we do. But um, that was a really serious failure uh, on Putin's part. I don't think it was a so much a failure on the West's part. I think it was a failure of interpretation on his part. I, I, I mean, I think in in some ways, I feel like that the West has been as shocked by the coherence of the Western response, Ooh. possibly as Putin has been. <laughs> said, you're absolutely right, and you know, all the signs were that it, it, we'd all sort of go running in different directions right up until the moment where it became clear that uh, that Putin was actually going to do it. You know, there was there was France. I mean, how long ago is it? Since uh, since Macron said that NATO was brain dead, it's probably about four yeah. months, three months, something like that. Um, you know, uh, Germany uh, brings in a, um, a left of centre uh, chancellor. Anybody would think he'll probably follow the sort of Gerhard Schröder line from the past and will mm -hmm. want to keep in with the Russians. And bingo, directly the the flag was up. Uh, there was Germany taking an extraordinarily tough and strong line, and there was Macron sharing all his information with the West. I mean, when did that happen? And uh, acting as though he was a member of 
this team that suddenly didn't seem to be brain dead any longer. I, I, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Schultz. It, it strikes me that I, I think that, again, of course, all, everything that we're talking about is is very speculative, but it strikes me that it, it would be at least possible that Putin would calculate that he would come in at least initially in a relatively weaker position than Angela Merkel as a, as a new leader. She, you know, seen as this kind of... Uh, icon for more than a decade. But it, it strikes me that that actually, because he was so new into that role, it was easier for him to make that huge policy U-turn than it might have been for Merkel, who was freighted with those that 12-year strategy, which had been hers up until that point. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely you're right. It would have been really Almost impossible, I think, for her to have, for instance, uh, jacked up uh, um, uh, Germany's defence spending in a matter of in a matter of weeks. But you know, um, Schultz is he's a he's a, a, a social democrat. It's not very easy for him to just ignore the uh, the, the mutterings on the left of his party and and do these things that. You know, we might have expected, we might have associated more with a Christian democratic leader. Mm. Um, so Putin's been um, an, an unchallenged leader of, of, in Russia for 20, more than 20 years. Obviously, there was that slightly odd interregnum when uh, Medvedev, I think it was, sort of, sort of took charge. Um, do, do you think that that, I mean, you mentioned the last two years of, of the isolation of COVID, but do you think that sort of a 22, you know, key to understanding him now is understanding that he's been an, essentially, a, I suppose, on a trajectory to being a dicta dictator for the past 20 years? Well, all I can tell you is that I've watched Putin over the years, over those 22 years, uh, and, and longer, actually. I actually first met him... Um, about a month after he became the deputy mayor or a deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, in St. Petersburg which was in right, 1992. Yeah. And I was introduced to him by the actual mayor, Anatoly Sobchak. And um, I just have a little faint sense of a short, ginger-haired, rather kind of inward-looking uh, figure whom I tried to be polite to, but was probably rather dismissive of because he clearly didn't count and he clearly would never go anywhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I've met him, talked to him privately uh, and publicly over over the years, and I would never have thought that he would turn into this kind of character. He was obviously um, a very kind of... Um, uh, suspicious and uh, careful uh, character. I mean, he wasn't. There wasn't anything very sort of open and 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 pleasant about. Except I have to say, um, uh, at the risk of sounding uh, well, name dropping outrageously and so on, he did say nice things about my broadcasting, and ironically, uh, even more ironically, said the nice things about the BBC, um, to which he listened. He said um, on on a daily basis to improve his English. And, you know, it, the same man would not say or do those things. Now, something has happened in the meantime. Has the power just simply gradually over the years gone to his head? Um, it certainly has gone to his head. But is it more recent? So we, I really want to talk about the rest of your career. So we, I'm going to leave Ukraine in a minute. But I feel like on a leadership, on a podcast about leadership, we cannot leave uh, Ukraine without talking about its president Vladimir Zelensky, um, who it seems to me is well, I'm not just me. I think the the world. It seems like he's an absolutely astonishing man. Who I who I, who I genuinely believe personally. I believe he's already left an indelible mark on history, irrespective. Uh, you know of, of how this plays out. I think a case of cometh the hour, cometh the man. If if ever there was one, um, have you met him, or, or what are your impressions? Uh, no, him? I haven't met him. Uh, I hope I'll do so in the next uh, sort mm. of month or so. Um, I, I mean, again, confession time. When I saw that uh, a, a comedian was standing uh, for the presidency, and then that 
against the the run of play, he had he had won the the presidency. I'm afraid I thought, you know, this is the world in general. This is kind of going down the tubes <laughs> yes. really, really fast. Yes, um, yes and and what a magnificent uh, performance that he's put up. I mean, that I don't think any of the MPs and Lords in the in the uh, Commons and the House of Lords who watched him the other day will ever forget that experience as he sat there in his dirty overalls and he hadn't shaved for a bit, uh, you know, showed them what actual leadership can really, really be like. Yes. I mean, that 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 is going to be a, well, is already a historic moment that we'll talk about, I'm sure, for well, way beyond our lifetimes, I think that 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 speech. Um, so, look, John, it, it's fa- I, honestly I could talk to you about Ukraine for, for, for forever, but um, you've done so many other fascinating things as well. So let's let's move on to the uh, your career prior to the last two weeks, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um, so you you once we're going to move from one uh, one uh, let's say dubious leader to some others. You once specialised in interviewing uh, dictators such as Saddam Hussein, Colonel Gaddafi. Um, how did you prepare for these? Uh, you know, was it different to meeting, you know, I, I don't know, uh, Francois Mitterrand? In terms of your preparation, I'm sure the experience yeah, Well, yeah, it is because for one very good reason that um, ordinary politicians, or at least elected politicians, um, they're they're used to answering questions. Uh, dictators aren't. Dictators don't actually like being asked questions. When you uh, asked uh, um, um, Saddam Hussein a question, he'd rear up and look at you and say, "Who are you? What brings you here? You know, you are just simply my mouthpiece, my my the the loudspeaker that I'm shouting into. You know, you don't you don't get to ask me questions, and." That is true, I think, of all the various uh, dictators and weirdos that I've that I've interviewed, um, and even the most. What shall we say? I'm just trying to think about it, of a of a suitable and inoffensive um, expression to describe Margaret Thatcher. I mean, she was d- deeply autocratic in many many ways, but she would listen to your questions and she would answer well. Often I used to think give you a better answer than most other politicians. You know, who turn up um, uh, with a, with a, a, with it all prepared and practiced in their minds. So she and took then, you seriously. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know how seriously she she did take. <laughs> she pretended to take you seriously. See <laughs> journalists, but she she listened to the question. She liked being asked difficult questions. I suppose that's it. She she liked showing off and. She loved it when she actually used to really enjoy it when I I would try and um, and and find really kind of complicated ways of getting her to confess that she was wrong, and uh, about something and the way in which she dealt with that I used to think was a was a masterclass in 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 interviewing, but that's the big difference. I mean, there's another difference that you're always. Um, with a man like Colonel Gaddafi, for instance, but there's loads and loads more. I, Emperor Bokassa of of the Central African Empire, no less, one of the two emperors that I've interviewed in my time. Um, he, uh, um, you never knew really whether if if you actually push them beyond a, a certain limit, uh, you might not leave well even the room, let alone the country. Well, that was good. that was my my follow up question: is were, were you scared or, or and or and or scarred by any of those experiences? Um, unscarred, I think, unscarred by most things. Uh, well, that's good from having a deeply insensitive nature, really. But but un, <laughs> also un, un, unscarred by um, physically. I mean, no, no, I never was was uh, beaten up or roughed up, I think, in, uh, as a result of any interview, oh, except one, uh, but that was the IRA, and that was a long time ago. Wow. But, I mean, in terms of in terms of going to, you know, to Baghdad or something, um, uh, no, I, you knew pretty much, actually, that you were going to get out of there okay. 
And who was the who was the most memorable leader that you've that you've met? Well, memorable for different uh, lots of different re- reasons. Um, I mean, I suppose uh, it, it's a bit of a kind of Reader's Digest answer, but uh, I suppose I've got to say Nelson Mandela because. Um, uh, you couldn't keep your eyes off him. I mean, he had that fantastic star quality where even just standing up and picking up his walking stick was done like a like a star. Um, and he was so genuinely charming. He was as real in private uh, uh, and before he became president uh, as he was after his his presidency um and i i loved him i absolutely loved him he wasn't perfect and he made uh you know and you can say that he opened the door a little bit to the corruption that's just overwhelming south africa now but in terms of the person that he was just quite magnificent vaclav havel of the uh, czech republic um a man that I got to know when he was a political um, fugitive. Well, not a fugitive, but a, uh, an ex-prisoner, just been allowed out, uh, uh, ill, um, in uh, quite seriously ill from the way that the Czech authorities had treated him. And so when is this? Is this in the 1970s, No, this John? was 1983, I think I went there. Um, and, uh, you know, what a... What a fantastically brave and charming and funny man he was. Again, you know, if you were building a, 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 a political leader out of, out of uh, Lego or something, you know, he is the one that you would want. He understood ordinary people. The first thing he did when he got into the, um, uh, this enormous palace, the Harajne Palace in, in Prague, was to order a couple of scooters so that he and and his chief advisor could go down the corridors up and down the corridors talking to each other as they as they scooted i it just there wasn't anything that that man did that seemed to me uh wasn't absolutely what a decent and wonderful political leader should do so there's them i mean there are loads of others but they, those are the two best ones the ones that i love i love actually not just like but love Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. It's often said that journalists write the first draft of history 
Um, and I think in that way, that, that, is, a, that is a leadership uh, responsibility, let's say. Do you feel like that weighs on you a little? Yeah, it, it really does. Um, uh, you see, I, I mean, aside from my day job, I've written various books, some of them about journalism and looking back at, um, well, in, in, in one case, looking back at journalism right back to its very origins in the 1620s. And I've been often very critical of 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 uh, uh, British and 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 other journalists for the way in which they've been taken in, uh, the way in which they they allowed their their own preconceptions to colour everything. I mean, please do not read uh, the British press on the. Uh, Russian Revolution, because you'll scarcely get a single genuine fact out of it. But that means, of course, that that does weigh on me a bit. Um, you know, am I doing the same kind of things that that the the British press did then, or that they did? I don't know, in the time of Suez or something. I'm, am I allowing my ideas, my principles, my affections uh, often? Uh, to to cloud my judgment of what's going on here. I mean, journalism is such a um, uh, an inconsistent and unreliable guide to things. The fact is, it's the only guide w we actually have to daily. Well, I was going to say it's it's the, it's the best we've yeah, got, it's right? It's the only thing we've got. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's certainly, it's certainly, in my opinion, preferable to getting your uh, worldview from Twitter, for for <laughs> oh, example. <laughs> uh, don't talk to me about Twitter. I mean, I, uh, I, I, you know, fling my phone across the room every now and then yeah. with the stuff that people write. Yeah, you and you and me both. <laughs> um, building on that, do you think that you've you've got things wrong? Uh, and, and indeed, is it that even the right word to use in the context of journalism and your? Oh, role? I think it's got to be because if you don't hold uh, people like me uh, to account for what we've written, um, then, you know, what's, what's the point of, uh, of anything? Yeah, I've got, I've had, I've got loads of things wrong in my time. Um, uh, I, I actually do, I think, remember every example or, 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 or most of them. I mean, these are usually quite trivial things. Um, uh, but uh, you know there have been there have been bigger things, and I've I've well as I say, uh, fortunately I didn't do any broadcasting about uh, uh, whether Putin was liable to to invade Ukraine. But if I had, I would have got that very very badly wrong, and I'm so glad that that fate just uh, held me back from uh, from doing it. <laughs> and there were lots of other things. To talk about which were which were slightly safer, but yeah, I mean, I've uh, I've um, I, I didn't think that uh, um, I didn't know that Saddam Hussein would invade Kuwait. Well, that's not a good example because nobody else did either. No. That was just no. his decision overnight. Um, but uh, that, I, you know, I mean, so many things that I've uh, that I've failed at. And so, so impartiality is a hot topic at the BBC right now. And by the way, I'm not not going to not going to get you into any trouble. I hope. What does that mean to you? I mean, do do you do you ever feel kind of caught in the middle? Well, yes. I mean, I think you should be too. I think you should always feel that that you are. And I mean, just to I'm not evading your question because I will come and answer it. But um, I always think the right place for a journalist is in the kind of no man's land between the different sides. I get really uncomfortable about the idea of, um, for instance, talking about we, us, mm. our. Uh, that yes. doesn't, I don't feel happy talking about that, whether it's about Britain or about the West or even indeed about human beings, although I suppose it's more uh, acceptable if you're talking about the human race in general. Um, it, uh, to be unbiased, to be honest, to be uh, open um, is, uh, I think, uh, um, the, the right way of doing things, uh, if, if you can do it. I think you have to accept it's bloody difficult, uh, it, you know, to, to, to take off your, 
your um, carapace of opinions and background and so on and see things as they are. But it's, I think it is possible. I argue, would argue that it's uh, entirely possible and should and should be done. What I don't think works any longer is what uh, is how the BBC used to do things. You know, the the uh, um, the government says this, uh, the opposition uh, says that, and you just leave it there. I don't think that's any longer really acceptable. And the judgment that, uh, say, a government minister has said something which isn't true. Uh, this mm-hmm. is very much of our time that uh, it's you know because government ministers used to strive uh, very hard not to tell lies uh, in public. How old fashioned! I, I know, I know, and how depressing <laughs> that it should be. Yes, um, but uh, uh, you know, I I think that a a balanced broadcaster has to has to take account of uh, untruths. And has to has to redress the balance for the untruths, as well as it's just such a cop out to say, uh, you know, the the remainers say this and the the leavers say that. Uh, it's you know you just might as well not exercise a brain at all. You could just uh, put their um, their handout side by side and read them out. So I, I think that um, I, I, I mean, I'd die for the principle of balance. Um, I, I think it's the most important thing that that the BBC can do and has ever done. Do we get it wrong? Of course we do. Loads of how I got it wrong, loads and loads of times. I, you know, I'm not saying we do it right, but I'm saying that the striving for it is the most important thing we can do. Yes, and I think particularly. Um... We just mentioned Twitter in a world where if you want to know what the left say or the right say or the remain say or the leave say, you you can find that everywhere all the time. If you just mouthpieces exist in a way that they didn't, I think, in in the past. Mm. So in a sense, the role of the media was partly to to tell you what the each side were saying, whereas it seems to me now the role of journalism and certainly. It, certainly when people are paying for journalism, and I mean, we are paying for the BBC in an indirect way, well, in a direct way, just in a different way, um, You, I think the role of journalism has evolved in that sense as well, as you want journalists who are going to uh, interpret um, what what is being said and what is happening. And I, you know, and I think that's, for me, that's a that role is even more important when we're being deluged with this kind of uh you know the social media or the the the, the twitter channels from the from the opposing forces yes no i i i thoroughly agree i i, I think i mean it, this principle of the the license fee i think should be something which uh um hangs over everybody that works for the bbc and you know, I think you should be able to say to yourself, um, "I'm when I'm reporting on this particular situation, whatever it may be, I'm reporting to people who've got very, very different, probably opposing views of what's going on. And not that you can necessarily convince them, but the one thing that you do have to convince them about is that you're being honest and fair and that you're saying these things because you have evidence to believe it's they're true, and uh, that I think is the is what differentiates uh, public service broadcasting. It's not only the BBC uh, from from other uh, from other forms of, of of journalism. You know, it isn't. It, we aren't just. Uh, the same as the as the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph or the just working in a different medium, it, it, it's a it's a different mindset, and um, I think it's I think that is really important actually. And and it's it's interesting as well. We we talked about Ukraine. Suddenly, we find ourselves in a world where there's a there's a war again in Europe. Um, and I think that the we might find ourselves being reminded about the BBC's role beyond uh, the UK. You know, the BBC historically has been a source of reliable information for people in all sorts of 
oppressed and difficult situations. And I think that's a that I think we to an extent sort of forgot that a little bit. And I think that's possibly going to become more important again in the future. Well, I hope you're right. Um, the uh, listenership to uh, the uh, BBC Russian service on the radio tripled virtually overnight uh, um, when the when the invasion of of uh, of Ukraine happened. Um, and um you know this year uh i'm i'm sorry i'm beginning to sound like a bit no of a no PR i ask you i'm I'm, I'm, a, I'm a supporter but, of the bbc so <laughs> i you know I, i'm a big fan so uh no problem well thank you um but uh you know we're we're now uh, going to hit at some stage this year probably quite soon um uh 500 million viewers listeners and readers around the world half a billion people it's biggest audience uh of any organization uh, broadcasting abroad and um, a, an opinion poll, the independent opinion poll just recently showed that uh, the BBC was the most trusted uh, broadcaster of any uh, internationally. And these are things, you know, they're great, but you, of course, you can't just sit back and say, oh, well, that's fine. You know, that's, uh, that's where you've got to keep on working for it and to make sure that in a year's time, in two years' time, people are still saying the same thing. Mm. I want to come back and talk specifically a bit about your job as, as a correspondent. Um, what, what does it involve? I mean, obviously, we talk about the... We talk about the uh, what I imagine is the tip of the iceberg bits where, you know, you talk to Vladimir Putin or, you know, Angela Merkel or whoever it is. But uh, but I, I imagine that that the vast majority of your job isn't doing that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, to be honest, uh, uh, and I'm perhaps being more than honest than I should be, um, for some time I was kind of pretty much uh, hanging on the precipice. I mean, I'm now 77, um, and uh, there was a definite kind of move to say, you know, cut the old boy loose, um, which I I rather resisted. Uh, in the last uh, two years, year or two years, uh, I've I've kind of made a comeback. I I've got a son, sixteen years old, um, lovely boy, um, not perhaps as well read in the classics as he might be. <laughs> That's true of us all. And, uh, That's surely true of great, us all, John. <laughs> certainly true of me. A great lover of football. <laughs> a great lover of football. And I said to him, when I, I they, the BBC's now given me a new programme and uh, a lot of lot more um, uh, opportunities to travel and broadcast, uh, bless their hearts. And uh, I said to my son, I feel exactly like <laughs> Lazarus. And my son said, oh, yeah, who does he play for? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so so do, you, do you think that people that uh, report from war zones uh, are, are a particular breed? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, people you will know far better than me, but, you know, Kappa and Gellhorn and Ernie Pyle and, you, you know, your your colleagues, Martin Bell and Lise Doucette. Um you don't seem to fit the stereotype. Uh, do you think there is one? I, there is a stereotype, which is, you know, those characters that go around with those uh, uh, yeah. jerkins with all sorts yeah. of pockets and stuff like that and uh, and silly hats and uh, say, you know, where's the, where's the front line? I mean, that is... A, th 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 there are types like that. They tend not to be from... The big organisations, um, they tend to be kind of freelancers who turn up and, and bless their hearts, they often do a, a superb job, but um, not my kind of, uh, 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 not the kind of person I, I kind of identify with, really. Um, I think the, the, the one thing that does seem to link all these people together um, is a, a willingness from time to time to set aside their own particular comfort and safety. And secondly, a real sense of curiosity about what's happening, uh, an unwillingness just simply to take it, uh, take it off the front page of The Guardian um, uh, and a desire to go and see for themselves what's actually 
happening. And I, that, that is true of just about everybody that you've named. I mean, Martha Gellhorn, I'm uh, proud and grateful to say, was a real uh, close friend of mine in the last, what, about six years, wow. I think, of her life uh, in, in London. And uh, I, I had hours upon She hours must have had some amazing stories. Oh, fantastic stories. I'm funny stories and and savage stories and uh, not always um, very comfortable stories either. And, you know, I mean, her her uh, first husband, um, um, Ernest Hemingway, wasn't exactly one of her favourites either. And, and that whole idea of that male type of, uh, of, of, of journalism, she didn't like that. But um, she didn't like, funnily enough, she didn't like all this emphasis on women journalists either. She said, "Darling, I'm 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 just a journalist. Uh, I happen to be a woman. It's of no significance." And um, so she, you know, not very enthusiastic about uh, about a lot of the things in our in our professional lives now. I wonder to myself if whether you've been a, a little bit self-effacing in the sense that one of the things we haven't talked about is raw physical courage i mean does that play a part well i mean if if i'm honest yes it does uh it can do at any rate the first thing to say is that even uh, reporting in war zones right up on the firing line is not often as dangerous so it's not a hundred percent uh dangerous all, all the time i mean you I, I've I've had various got various injuries, bit lumps of metal in me, limp, uh, death, all from from bombs and 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 guns uh, uh, and things. But um, those things usually happen not because you're you've pushed ahead somewhere you shouldn't be, but by chance somebody else has made a mistake uh, in 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 where you're you're bombed. That, I think the one thing that uh, if I were talking to a, a young a young journalist who wanted to do these kind of things, I would say always go further than you think you ought to um, because your your fears kick in quite early on when you when you're when you're going around and there are loud bangs and uh, you know all sorts of things happening um, you should get closer. Uh, always get closer, and I've I've passed that on to people. In my own case, I think um, if I can be uh, if I can stand outside myself a little bit, I think uh, the the times that I uh, have some reason to be proudest of is not those necessarily those times. It's when you're on your own and your your organisation orders you to leave. And on, I think, three occasions, I've uh, disobeyed instructions and stayed, and it was always the right thing to do. I mean, once when a group of people were hunting us down uh, in um, in uh, um, Serbia uh, during the, the bombing of, of Belgrade, and um, once in uh, the... Um, bombing of of uh, of Baghdad in 1991. Uh, again, the BBC ordered me out, and somewhere else too. And um, I, you know, I just think there are times when you've got to say to yourself, "Look, I'm probably not going to get out of this, so I'm going to do the best I possibly can while I'm here." And then, bingo. You do get yep. out of it, so I mean, it's you know, it's win-win. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm saying it <laughs> sounds absolutely terrifying to me. I'm going to be honest, John. <laughs> somebody who works in advertising, that's pretty scary. Um, uh, and uh, so, what, what's what what's kept you going? What's kept you going back to to do all these places over the past fifty years? I mean, are you a little bit of a secret adrenaline junkie? I mean, is it? Is, no, I'm not. I really, really am not. Uh, honestly, I, I'm, I'm not. Um, but uh, what I, I just, I just kind of get irritated that I'm not. I, 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 I'm not seeing it for my, 
for myself, really. That's all. I mean, I'm having uh, no secret, I think, about it. I'm having a real battle with the BBC at the moment because I very, very much want to go to Ukraine. And they look at me and they think, this this old boy is 77 and, uh, you know, he's uh, he's probably not going to make it. And so we're having we're having a, a battle. I I suppose they'll win, but uh, you might have to end up being uh, like one I'll, of those guys you were talking about. You might have to get your your jacket with lots of pockets on and just you know and go and go yourself. <laughs> yeah, do it for yeah. myself. Yeah, but I'm I'm too uh, I'm too mean to pay for myself after fifty years of uh, of being paid for. <laughs> so I I mean that's that's really uh, that's really what keeps me uh going um also um uh, you know i think it 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 is to have something to add to the general conversation about a, a situation like this um i i belong um uh, nowadays I, I i often think i'll uh, get into trouble for belonging to the garrick club in trouble because you know it, it hasn't yet accepted women though it will of course um and uh, when I first started as a as a member, uh, lots and lots of famous old broadcasting luminaries like Robin Day and oh I don't know endless others used to have a table in the in the dining room and they'd sit there and if you sat near them, you'd hear uh, all their old stories. But the stories all ended on the day they they retired, yeah. and yes. um, I just used to think I. I really don't want to be like this. I don't want my life to end at the age of 68. And then suddenly the only people I can talk to who are interested to talk to me uh, are people who remember all those things from the past. I don't want to be, uh, I probably am anyway, but I, probably, I don't really want to be the club I'm ball, sure that, I'm, I'm sure that'll never happen. So I, I, have, I, I have two final questions. The, the first is, um, if you could go back to your, the start of your career, um, what advice would you give your younger self? Never, ever leave a story. I, I, was, I, I was in um, Angola uh, and I stumbled, together with several other people, I stumbled across uh, a really big story at the time, a big story, a massacre that had been carried out by British soldiers uh, British mercenaries, rather, and um, uh, it was ultra scary. It really was absolutely terrifying. And uh, the BBC said, "Come back to London and do it." And I, I went back to London, and the people that I'd left left behind got the story out before me and uh, got a much better and more uh, effective story than I did. I would say to any young reporter, never, never leave the story until you're absolutely certain that it's finished. And do not go out early because you're scared, because you'll always be scared about something and it's just, uh, it's not worth it's not worth leaving for. But there's a second thing I would say uh, to any young, uh, young um, person really starting up, don't, don't limit yourself in how long you think you can do the job. I mean, here am I, I'm still chasing around the place. I was in Afghanistan uh, uh, a month ago um, uh, at the age of, of, of 77. Uh, you know, don't limit yourself. Don't think that just because you pass a certain figure, uh, you then cease to be of value. Um, and I, you know, I just kind of keep on hoping it's well, true. I'm sure that it is. Well, <laughs> look, I, I mean, I have got one final question, but what I, what I would say is that, you know, I think on behalf of all of us, we, we'll we start petitioning the BBC to uh, to let you into Ukraine because I certainly would uh, uh, would love to hear your perspective on it. It would be fascinating. So my, my final question is an entirely selfish question, in fact. So um, anybody that knows me knows that I'm, a, I'm something of a geek about old aeroplanes. And, and I discovered by chance that you're, I think you're great, great, grandfather, am I right, flew the first powered flight in Britain in 1908, a year after, I think, Blériot crossed the channel. Um, yeah. No, a year, no, before, a year before, of course, a year before Blériot crossed the channel. No, thank you. Um, 
did legends did, did sort of legends about him feature significantly in your childhood or you know do you think there's some uh, connection oh, do you think some yes. of your kind of uh, spirit has come from him well what a lovely question to ask thank you um uh, yeah, I was brought up in the sort of afterglow of of Colonel Cody. He was uh, he wasn't a colonel, and his name wasn't Amazing. Cody. Uh, he was to some extent a con man, um, except where everything that mattered was concerned. So he came over to England. Uh, he was a brilliant um, rider and shot, uh, absolutely brilliant marksman. Those were those were facts about him. And he built up a, a, a circus. He called himself Cody because of uh, Buffalo Bill Cody. Um, and he uh, ran off with my great-grandmother, who was uh, a married woman with no fewer than four kids uh, living in Chelsea. And um, he went the toured Europe with his, with his circus. She used to stand against uh, an iron screen and he'd ride around on his horse firing uh, his uh, gun at, the, at little glass balls all around her her figure once he hit her in the in the thigh and to kind of maintain his reputation for accurate marksmanship she stood there um, until the show until the the, the, the act was finished um, and he was absolutely magnificent much older than all the other young guys that were that were flying pioneers he was he was already in his late 40s early 50s um and uh, the only way that he knew how to land was to crash so every flight that he took including his first one ended in a near death experience um just a wonderful fantastic charming bloke and then one day in 1913, he took a new model plane up and it broke up in the air and uh, he uh, he died uh, instantly. And I always felt something kind of went out of my family, a bit of the glamour um, and excitement and joy went out of my family when he died. But, uh, you know, I was only born 30, 30 odd years later, but everybody in the family was still talking about Cody, wow. Cody, Cody. Wow, wow. Well, they do say they do say that any landing you can walk away from is a good landing. So uh so <laughs> I'm sure that was sure that was true then. Well, uh, John, it's absolutely uh, fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed that and I've learned a lot from it. And so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And I can't tell you how much of it, how chuffed I am that you would have noticed Cody and uh, talked about him too. <laughs> What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.